Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good week. Hard to believe it's already Friday. And what I also find hard to believe is that um, we may not have finished the first full week of February, but come the start of this uh, upcoming week, it'll be the first full week of the new month. But I will say that it is hard to believe that we already are in February. Um, I did learn uh, yesterday that... um, that the groundhog, um, that uh, tradition they have in uh, Punxsutawney, uh, Pennsylvania, outside of, um, which is located outside of uh, Altoona, uh, Groundhog Phil, uh, he did, I believe he uh, saw his shadow, which meant that uh, we still have another six weeks of winter. And what do you know, with the uh, brutal Arctic uh, chill blast in the Northeast and uh, Upper Midwest, Groundhog uh, Phil's um, forecast uh, has certainly uh, proven uh, the effect. Matter of fact, I uh, looked at Lake Placid, New York's weather, and earlier, or rather later in the afternoon when I checked, it was already 23 below outside up there, but the wind chill made it feel like it was 43 below. So uh, when I told that to my wife, uh, she said, you know what, Kirk, I know where I would be, inside by the fire, either having a glass of hot tea or a nice glass of hot chocolate. Either way, I'm not going to be outside. Well, I can tell you this much. If anybody was outside 23 below with a wind chill of, say, 43 below, you better be well uh, bundled up. Um, If you only have, like, one or two layers of clothing on with that kind of temperature outside, um, you really are uh, playing with fire. In other words, you run the risk of getting frostbitten, um, Uh, you know, your skin could become very uh, vulnerable to uh, frostbite and uh, consequences uh, would not be um, nice to say the least. So, um, so nonetheless, it is uh, very important to um, listen to what the weather reporters have to say. I mean, as they say, yes, listen to what the doctor tells you, but also listen to what the meteorologists have to say. If you know that you don't need to go anywhere, just stay inside, even if it's not snowing and it's uh, brutally cold outside, like, you know, 23 below with a wind chill of 40 below. Yeah, it's probably best to stay inside. Hey, I'm not a, a meteorologist, but at the same time, it's uh, always important to keep an eye on the weather and it's always important to stay one step ahead because, you know, we never know what uh, tricks Mother Nature has up her sleeve, even in the month of winter. What I do know is that um, we are still um, on the uh, journey to, um, we're still on the journey that is in uh, learning everything there is to know about Benedict Arnold. And from what I can tell so far, we have uh, learned a great deal already uh, five podcast uh, episodes in. Tonight's uh, podcast segment marks uh, number six. And uh, in this segment, we're going to learn how uh, Benedict Arnold, he does come back home to New Haven, but it comes in spurts. He's home for short periods of time, and yes, he enjoys seeing his sons, but yet his sister is very worried about his um, his well-being. In other words, okay, if Benedict, you know, were to die in battle, 
I'm pretty much going to be the one that has uh, not only just sole custody of his boys, but I will be the one that has to pretty much uh, be the one to uh, rear them and, uh, and overlook and uh, look over them in terms of their needs, not just short term, but long term. We will also learn more about um, Horatio Gates. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we learned about him in that uh, introduction in one of the earlier uh, podcast um, segments. He will definitely be discussed more when we um, return back to uh, Saratoga. But he will be discussed in this episode because um, Benedict Arnold will uh, get introduced to Horatio Gates prior to Saratoga. And I will tell you this much, when Benedict Arnold does get introduced to Horatio Gates, it actually will be a uh, pleasant um, setting. And I'm sure many of you are wondering, okay, well, if it was a pleasant setting early on, why did things go sour? And eventually we will get to that point. What I also can tell you in this uh, podcast segment, pardon me, is that we will also learn about how Congress decides to become a micromanaging institution with regards to this war. In other words, we're going to learn some unpleasantries that go on, but we also have to understand that, you know, for starters, we've already de we've declared our um, independence from England. At least I think we've declared our ind independence at this point. The only reason I say that is because uh, we will be um, going through some uh, loopholes in terms of... Um, in terms of years like 1775 up to 1777. But once uh, we have officially declared our separation from uh, England, that's when Congress really starts taking on greater means of uh, micromanaging. This micromanaging has potential to make or break how um, individuals who have uh, talent, who have lots of um, unique uh, features, that can help um, make all the difference between victory or death in a battle or just leadership onto itself. We'll, we have to uh, learn that um, Congress's role in this time of war, there is partisanship. Not just partisanship, but also partisanship from within members of Congress, but partisanship um, amongst the members of Congress, including those whom are uh, leading the greater war effort. So let's get on with our uh, first uh, question to this uh, podcast segment. So here we go. Although Benedict Arnold's sister, Hannah Arnold, looked after his three boys while he was away, did Hannah herself express signs of becoming overwhelmed? Yes, she did. Uh, for one, uh, Benedict, Benedict's sons miss their father dearly. And, and these boys are very young. I mean, even if they were a little bit older, yes, they would still miss their father. But given that they are very young, they're still having a hard time uh, processing the fact that their mother has uh, passed away. So, yes, uh, Benedict's sons miss their father dearly. Second, Secondly, rather, Hannah lived in a regular state of uncertainty in regards to, to not knowing if her nephew's father would return home alive. And there again, as I said earlier, for Hannah, she has, she has a lot on her plate now. Okay, if my brother doesn't come home alive, 
I'm the one that's going to have to be um, in charge of these three boys until they reach adulthood status. Hannah ran Benedict's uh, shipping business. You know, yes, uh, Hannah's brother is not an alcoholic like their father was, but yet she's in the same uh, shoes as her late mother and that she is having to run she's having to run a business a business that is primarily ran or held by that of a male figure so yes hannah is running um her brother's shipping business while he was away and it wasn't just the fact that her brother was away but there are many other men away there are there are many other men whom are away pardon me fighting the same noble cause as hannah's brother However, one of the big hurdles is not so much running Benedict's uh, shipping business and making sure that it stays afloat, although that is important, but one of her biggest concerns is that she is unable to find enough men whom could operate a brigantine uh, vessel that Benedict himself owned. So in other words, you know, she's got two choices. She could either sit back and just let this uh, ship, or not so much ship, but a uh, vessel, and a brigantine, folks, is a two-masted sailing ship. So, yes, uh, Hannah can sit back and let, and let this ship just sit there and do nothing, or she could sell it. But who would she sell it to? Well, it turns out, folks, that she did sell the ship, and she sold it in fixed sums of money to investors in New York. Well, wait a minute. I thought the British invaded New York. Well, they did. But they didn't invade New York until August of 1776. So Hannah sold the ship prior to the British invasion of New York come August of 1776. So when she sold it, she had no idea that a British invasion was going to happen. Hannah Arnold uh, pleaded relentlessly for her brother to return home to his children along with saving his business. Benedict ignored uh, his sister's requests. He felt that fighting a, a more noble cause took precedent in being securing uh, America's independence, not only on the battlefield, but along the waterfronts. And all of that is important, you know, in terms of fighting for something that you believe is noble, but for Benedict Arnold, it wasn't about securing America's independence on the battlefield and the waterfronts. His um, main objective, or and I hate to say this, but it could be more of a dark objective, it was all about maintaining honor and image, which could be intact at the present moment, but come later elsewhere, honor and image could be ruined by others' acts of cowardice, or rather, I should say, by other people's acts of cowardice. So, in other words, you know, no matter where Benedict Arnold has gone, and yes, his father has been gone now for probably about just over 10 years at best, but no matter where Benedict is going, it, it seems like the past is always catching up to him. And not just so much his father's passing. It's not so much that his dad died, 
but that how his dad went from being so high profiled and respected to becoming um, uh, to becoming someone who um, became uh, full of disgrace, if that's a more uh, appropriate way of summing it. Benedict Arnold doesn't want to make those same mistakes, and you can't blame the the individual. But yet, even as he is, but he, but even after he left Norwich, there still seems to be a paper trail of conflict. And no matter where he's gone uh, so far since the first shots were fired around the world, there never there never seems to be um, a break. In other words, no matter what he tries to do. He'll never be able to to catch a clean break and and forge ahead to where okay I've I've made this break and now I know that no no matter whom I come into contact with they're always going to be on my side they're going to share the same values principles ideals including being utmost um, honesty all the time as wishful thinking as that is and as much as Benedict Arnold would like to believe that that were the case he's going to find that's going to be the exact opposite. So yes, uh, preserving your honor and image is very important, but it can come at a price. It can come at, at prices both big and small. Uh, did Benedict Arnold have uh, strong navigational experiences? And I'm sure some of you are thinking, why is navigational experiences important? Well, for one, I mean, he does have a ship that uh, his sister did sell, but if he had that ship, was there a reason for why he had the ship? It had nothing to do with recreational purposes, folks. So let's find out. I mean, we know that he did have uh, a ship, but we also know it is fair to say that he had strong navigational experiences, and it was largely due in part to his time as a sea merchant, which included voyages across the Atlantic Ocean to England, as well as making journeys into Canada and the Caribbean. And these were all for business-related purposes. Now, the reason why his navigational experiences are going to come into play is because New York State, New York State has become the crucial link between New England and the Mid-Atlantic States. In other words, uh, just south of New York, bordering New York, is Pennsylvania. New England states bordering New York are uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts. Of course, Vermont is considered a New England state, but Vermont was not around at this time. Her territory was wedged in between New York and New Hampshire, and of course, Vermont borders those states in today's modern-day times. But as I've said before, and I'd say it again, just remember, New York and New Hampshire for years fought over the territory that we now know as Vermont. So, yes, New York... Um, Nonetheless, New York is a crucial um, linkage route between uh, New England and the Mid-Atlantic states. Mid-Atlantic, we could say, like Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Uh, New, New Jersey does border New York. So given that New York um, is a critical link between the New England and Mid-Atlantic states, June 1776 saw the Continental Army retreat from Quebec, Canada to Forts Ticonderoga and Crown Point in the midst of British forces becoming more heavily reinforced. Well, if the British forces are becoming more heavily reinforced and they are making their way um, southward, 
and Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point folks, that they are both on uh, the southern end of Lake Champlain. So Lake Champlain folks could possibly uh, be seeing a, a potential conflict uh, in terms of a battle on the lake uh, somewhere uh, down the road in the foreseeable future. So anyways, uh, Benedict Arnold goes right to work, and given with his uh, navigational experiences, uh, he sees to it that um, that some ships get built. Not just ships get built, but the ships that have more navigable um that are far more navigable in terms of uh, better movement uh, within Lake Champlain's uh, shallower waters versus Britain's uh, big deep water vessels that would uh, not be able to navigate as, as freely in Lake Champlain when encountering upon the uh, shallower uh, waters. Well, ben Benedict Arnold does go before uh, Benjamin Franklin Matter of fact, I don't know if he went before Benjamin Franklin, I take that back, or if he wrote to Benjamin Franklin. But nonetheless, Benjamin Franklin was the chairman of the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety, and he approved of Arnold's plan, which also included the building of two galleys. And if any of you aren't sure what a galley is, I'll tell you right now, galleys were low, flat ships with one or multiple sails, including three sets of oars. Now, um... The person above whom Arnold reported to at this time was none other than Horatio Gates. Horatio Gates is totally fine with Arnold taking the helm, given Gates himself had confessed that he knew hardly much about shipbuilding. All right, well, if Gates, is, if Gates himself has admitted that he doesn't know much at all about shipbuilding, but yet he's got someone... But yet he's got someone in Benedict Arnold who does. Then why not give Benedict Arnold all the necessary um, leverage to go about uh, coordinating uh, what needs to be done to ensure that there is uh, security, not just security, but safety along Lake Champlain's waters for the um, Continental Army and for this uh, soon-to-be Continental Navy. Now, there are some things that we should uh, discuss here briefly about Horatio Gates that are uh, very um, important because most of you probably are wondering how in the world did Horatio Gates work his way up the ladder? Well, for starters, Horatio Gates was a one-time uh, former officer in the British Army. He had served under the British Army during the War of the, of the Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. French and Indian War. In both wars, Horatio Gates encountered um, several roadblocks where he simply was unable to advance within the British Army. Because he had difficulty in um, advancing within the British Army, he sold his payment, or rather I should say his commission, and ended up uh, settling in Virginia. It was through George Washington that the Continental Congress made Horatio Gates the adjutant general. And if any of you are wondering what in the world is an adjutant general, spelled A-D-J-U-T-A-N-T, adjutant general refers to military chief administrative officer. In this case now, Horatio Gates has become the administrative officer 
chief administrative officer, rather, I should say, of the Continental Army in 1775. If he's become like if he's become the military chief administrative officer, we would think of someone sitting at the desk or at their desk, um, writing forms left and right, basically being in the field of um, administrative work. And to me, it would be fair to say, right now, and I and I'll say this again later on, that Horatio Gates may have been a better administrator, but when it came to being a commander. Maybe the best word to describe right now is iffy. In other words, we don't know what kind of leadership he's going to bring today. He may have brought good leadership in the last battle, but is he going to bring that same kind of um, swagger or style of fighting this, this time around? So there could be some unpredictability here, and you never know where, where his um, unpredictability might come into play and how it could impact uh, others from within. And perhaps uh, someone who is, who's a little bit more bold and daring like Benedict Arnold. We, we just don't know how that could play out down the road. But anyways, in uh, 1776, um, Horatio Gates did get assigned uh, com head command of Fort Ticonderoga. However, um, if there's anything else that's unique about Horatio Gates, it would be the following. He wasn't the only officer within the British Army whose career behind advancing got hindered, meaning that if it got hindered, it, uh, it got prevented or held back. Men from Brigadier General Richard Montgomery to General Charles Lee encountered the same circumstances. So I just find it very unique that, you know, sometimes when we, when we learn about one officer and his struggles, we think, oh, it only just happened to that one officer. No, it, it turns out that it happened to other officers. 1776 um, was one of those years where Horatio Gates is pretty much okay with Benedict Arnold doing what he needs to do on his end to help um, be prepared for any kind of uh, conflict in terms of skirmish or uh, naval um, action along uh, the northern uh, war front of the uh, of the uh, revolutionary war so yes gates is fine um as a matter of fact he's okay with benedict arnold's courage but later on down the road in this war for independence gates's demeanor would become more unpredictable and and it would impact officers like arnold so we better um uh, know now what we could what we're going to be going into um here soon when exactly in 1776 did Benedict Arnold's naval forces take on the British under the command of General Guy Carleton? How about October 11th? Four months after, um, rather I take it back, no, three months, pardon me, three months after uh, delegates in Philadelphia had officially um, severed their ties to uh, Britain, and by doing so, they severed their ties by declaring their uh, state of independence back from uh, July 4th. But here we are now three months later on October the 11th. Primary action ensued around Valcor Bay. And Valcor Bay, um, I'm sure most of you probably don't know of Valcor Bay, but it's uh, not um, 
it's not uh, too far from uh, Plattsburgh. That's one of the um, big towns or um, mid-level cities uh, surrounding uh, Lake Champlain on the New York side. But anyways, Valcor Bay is a strait. And what I mean by a strait is S-T-R-A-I-T. A strait is a... It, it's where um, two large areas of water are connected. In this case, Valcor Island and Lake Champlain's west side. The battle itself came to be known as one of the first naval battles uh, fought in the Revolutionary War and the first by the U.S. Navy. Now, when we think of uh, naval battles at, along the waters, sometimes it's easy to assume that it's just one ship squaring off against um, one ship on the opposing side. We do have to be reminded that uh, there have been many of times in history when um, ships are at war along the waterfront, or if there's a war along the waterfront, and obviously it's involving ships, that uh, oftentimes uh, each side w would have more than one ship squaring off against each other, or it would be that um, a couple of ships started out only to have others on each side defending it, and if the, one of the big ships got hit or you know, took direct hits to the point where it could no longer function, then you would have other ships come... Um, come near the big one or the big ones to uh, try to uh, modify uh, whatever uh, damage has already happened. So what I learned uh, when having read this book was that Arnold's naval fleet at um, the Battle of um, Lake Champlain or what um, some historians would say uh, Valcor Bay or uh, Valcor Island, however you want to um, choose, but for Benedict Arnold, his naval fleet comprised of 15 vessels. It's not a bad number, given that our Navy, and for those of you who were with me when we did uh, Rebels at Sea privateering in the American Revolution, remember, folks, uh, the United States Navy, at best, got to around close to 60 ships. Never once did it get anywhere near 100 or exceed 100. So... To start off with 15 vessels at uh, Lake Champlain, that's a very uh, respectable number. We have four galleys, two schooners, a sloop, and eight gundalows. And, I'm for, and if any of you aren't familiar with a gundalo, think of it as like a gondola. The uh, gundalows were uh, flat-bottomed sailing barges, which, believe it or not, dated back to the mid-1600s. Now, if Arnold's uh, fleet size of 15 is high, take a guess at just how many um, vessels are under General Guy Car under General Guy Carleton's um, watch. Anybody want to take a guess? How about 33? So the British have 18 more vessels than Arnold has. So Arnold definitely knows that he's going up against. Um, against some very uh, tough odds, but at the same time, you know, Benedict Arnold is one of those men whom is full of courage and determination, so he's not going to let this um, stand in his way. However, for uh, General Carleton, 28 out of his 33 vessels are gunboats. Smaller military ships with large guns 
used around the coastal areas as a means of um, as a means of greater defense and perhaps as a means of a, a big scare tactic to uh, to uh, ward off those whom would be uh, trying to um, do something to uh, the ships with these um, with these uh, guns, basically. So yes, 28 of the 33 vessels are uh, gunboats. Now, the British do prevail here, folks, and a majority of the ships in the American fleet did get captured or destroyed by the British. So yes, this is a British victory. They did win the Battle of Valcour Island, but they didn't win 100%. Well, how so? I mean, if they've won the battle, how did they not, how did they not come through 100%? Well, if there was anything that Benedict Arnold and what was left of the ships that were not uh, captured or destroyed, American naval defenses at Lake Champlain halted British plan halted British plans to reach the upper Hudson River Valley. And by preventing the British in reaching the upper Hudson River Valley, the British. Uh, one could say they missed their opportunity, and two, it basically prevented the British from uh, from going uh, further south. In other words, you know, the Upper Hudson River Valley, you would think that's, you know, going north and just staying north, but the Hudson River Valley runs north and south. Uh, the Hudson River Valley goes as far south as into uh, the Catskills of uh, New York, uh, which are around uh, Green, Ulster, Rockland counties. So basically, when you think of uh, the Catskills, they are well south of the Adirondacks, but the Catskills are closer to, um, they're not too terribly far from uh, from uh, the boroughs, or what I might think of as like, say, the Bronx or uh, New York City, uh, Long Island. So anyways, yes, so uh, Benedict Arnold and his forces were able to uh, halt the um, British uh, advance uh, to reach the upper Hudson River Valley. While all of that uh, was played out, and despite the defeat and, the, um, and some form of triumph, prior to this happening, if, you go, if we forward backwards to December 1st of 1775... Remember that fella uh, named uh, John Brown and his uh, sidekick partner, James Easton, whom dislike Benedict Arnold dearly, or uh, they dislike him with everything they've got in their hearts? Well, John Brown had compiled 13 accusations on Benedict Arnold. He sent the charges, folks, and this is important. It wasn't so much that he compiled 13 accusations on Benedict Arnold. It's whom he sent the charges to, Horatio Gates. Okay, I thought Horatio Gates and Benedict Arnold are on good terms right now. They, they should be, but what Horatio Gates has not done is, for one, he has not um, addressed to Benedict Arnold that someone has um, levied accusations against you. And secondly, even if uh, Gates did um, tell Arnold this, who's to say that Gates would have wanted to have gotten Arnold's story? So in other words, Gates has all this on file, but yet he's keeping it to his advantage. 
I tell you, um, even in, in this uh, crisis, even in this, uh, what we know of as a noble cause for independence from the world's mightiest empire, even this ragtag continental army is dealing with issues from within where it might be fair to say people are getting stabbed in the back, and it's not pretty. Just like in today's modern um, politics. Now, despite those American people supporting the patriot cause of independence, including honoring uh, Benedict Arnold's uh, recent achievements between 1775 and 1776, and in 1775 it involved uh, capturing uh, Ticonderoga, in 1776, it involved halting uh, the British in further advancement up the uh, upper Hudson River. So, yes, despite um, the American people or those American people supporting the Patriot cause of independence to honoring Benedict Arnold's uh, recent achievements, there, there still remained an ever-growing uh, presence of enemies from within whom sought to ruin Arnold not only in the present moment, but throughout the Revolutionary War's duration. So folks, uh, as much as we'd like to think that, that, that regardless of whoever is out there wanting to ruin Arnold, we think it's just those people in the present moment. I hate to tell you this, but it's going to be a constant theme. And as the years go by, it's only going to get worse. I wish I didn't tell you all that now, but it's better to have this heads up. It's better to have the heads up now before it's uh, too late. Was the Continental Congress determined to micromanage every phase, or rather, I should say, element of the Revolutionary War? I had mentioned earlier, right before we um, got the show on the road, about, the, about Congress engaging in um, practices such as micromanaging. When it comes to micromanaging, that usually means, it usually refers to uh, someone who is wanting to do everything on their own without turning to other people from within, say, the inner circle or from within a cabinet for uh, proper consultation and advice on a matter that they probably have more knowledge about than, say, the actual person whom is, uh, you know, governing, say, governing a nation or governing a state. So, yes, it is very fair to say that, co that our Continental Congress was beginning to micromanage every phase or element of the Revolutionary War, and it, and it um, first uh, began in the winter of 1776 to 1777. And it wasn't just the season, it was just the time in which it all uh, went into full gear. The winter of 1776 to 1777 proved just how intent delegates were behind implementing new measures to enforce their control. In December of 1776, of course when I think of December 1776, I think of Christmas night. I think of George Washington and what was left of his ragtag uh, Continental Army went on that mission of victory or death across the, Hutt, across the uh, Delaware River into New Jersey on a 10-mile march, capturing 900 um, Hessian uh, soldiers. Not just capturing Hessian soldiers, 
but also shooting their lead commander, who was one of the first to die. Yes, the uh, at Trenton it was victory or death, and and had Washington not bent the rules and taken what the uh, double spy informant had given him, history would be much different. The Revolutionary War and its cause for independence would have um, ended, and more than likely we would have uh, returned as subjects to the crown. So nonetheless, December 1776, Congress promoted a, a fellow by the name of Thomas Conway from brigadier to major, if I could, a little tongue twister there, pardon me folks, December 1776, Congress promoted Thomas Conway from brigadier to major general. Okay, it's one thing to promote someone, but what did Congress not do, folks? They did not get George Washington, or rather I should say General George Washington's approval. You know, he's the commander of the Continental Army. If you want to get approval, shouldn't you be going through the general? Yes. Should you not be stabbing the general in the back? Yes, you should not be doing that. However, uh, Washington opposed Conway's promotion on the grounds that he knew of other American officers with seniority whom were more deserving. In other words, uh, Congress didn't allow George Washington to go before them and say, hey, here are my reasons why Thomas Conway should not be promoted as of now from Brigadier General to Major General. Besides Thomas Conway's promotion to Major General, Congress also made Thomas Conway Inspector General of the Army, where he got placed in charge of drilling and training troops. Conway now reported directly to the Board of War, no longer to General Washington. Talk about insult here, folks. Now, for all we know, these changes could have been made just before Trenton, or you know, the Battle of Trenton. But even so, is it fair to say that there are plenty of uh, people in Congress who have this burning desire to want Washington out? I think so. They probably have seen enough. They saw just how bad of a debacle the whole New York campaign was. They, they are seeing firsthand desertions rampant. They are seeing firsthand uh, people, uh, soldiers giving up, going back to their homes, uh, tending to their farms, being with their families. There's nothing to fight here for. Yes, we have this Declaration of Independence document, but it doesn't mean anything if we haven't won a significant battle. Well, it all did change with Trenton. Our Declaration of Independence did have meaning. But the sad part is, even uh, before Trenton, or leading up to Trenton, we have members of Congress who are rushing to judgment. So, yes... Thomas Conway now reports directly to the Board of War and no longer to General Washington. Horatio Gates now is named the Board of War President. George Washington now was to simply be overlooked and second-guessed by the new board, which was comprised of junior officers. Well, 
to sum it all up here, folks, there really is now, there really is now at this point in time, folks, no proper line of authority. There are multiple lines of authority, but yet we have one line of authority that shouldn't be valued, and that is General George Washington. Lines of authority lacked all proper structure. Congress saw seniority and the overall value behind being good as something which denied them the proper power behind choosing um, promotions. Congress voted to, de to deny General Washington the full power to appoint or let go of general officers. I see that as a huge no-no. Congress allowed for lobbying and partiality, a.k.a. favoritism, to take over. This became a new norm procedure. Not long afterwards, Congress promoted five officers to rank of major general. Benedict Arnold was already a brigadier general and was a senior one but yet he got passed over for the promotion while five other officers below Arnold in rank status, with one being a militia officer. They all got promoted over Arnold. To me, it makes no sense whatsoever. Although Benedict Arnold led the U.S. Navy into action at Lake Champlain and lost, but yet managed to defend upstate New York from further British advancement along the upper Hudson River. The uh, sting of superseded, uh, the sting of being superseded to dealing with um, allegations. So in other words, no matter what Benedict Arnold had done, it just wasn't enough now for this new board of war it's really, it's just not enough. And it's too many loopholes. It's, um, it's too much. Brigadier General Benedict Arnold was not the only senior officer whom got passed over for a promotion. On one hand, that's unfortunate, but it could be somewhat of a relief knowing that he's not the only one. A good example happened in February of 1777 where Congress passed over John Stark of New Hampshire, whom served with Washington at the Battles of Trenton in December, the Battles of Trenton, New Jersey, December 1776, and Princeton, New Jersey, January 1777. Both battles saved America's independence cause. But the sad part here is that uh, given that uh, John Stark was uh, passed over for a promotion, the uh, Congress uh, promoted New Hampshire Colonel Enoch Poor to Continental Army Brigadier General. Enoch Poor, folks, <laughs> he refused to march his militia regiment from New Hampshire to Bunker Hill, Massachusetts on June 17th, 1775. Now, why in the world did he pass up on an opportunity? That I don't know. What I do know is that uh, John Stark was an experienced commander whose fighting, or rather I should say military career, dated back to the Seven Years' War, and he got passed over by someone with minimal military experience, but yet lacked the will to fight.
My gosh, has Congress lost its mind? I'm afraid it has. Yes, they are learning the ropes. Yes, they're, yes, this is a time of war. But yet Congress is not making proper decisions. Is it fair to say that Congress is in a state, or rather in a mode of I, me, myself? Yes. And, and it doesn't help that, um, that there is uh, what we call partiality. Impartiality would be not showing favorites, but when you engage in partiality, you are playing favorites, favoritism. So men like John Stark and Benedict Arnold are getting the brunt, and they should not have to be suffering at the, at the expense of Congress, whom is, whose members, maybe not all members, but a good number of them, including those on the board of war, are looking after their own interests, but not the interests of the greater uh, cause and, and the greater uh, people whom are uh, serving it. Did Benedict Arnold write to General Washington expressing his dismay over Congress's new policies behind how officers now got chosen? Yes, Washington responded to Arnold come early April 1777 and explained why Congress passed him over. I found this uh, very interesting when having read the book. I never, it never would have dawned on me. Some of it does make sense with Congress's thinking, but if I was in Benedict Arnold's shoes and that of George Washington's, it would have been very, very uh, perplexing, to say the least. To say the least, uh, Washington learned and mentioned in his letter to uh, Benedict Arnold that Congress decided the number of general officers, it was Basically, Congress determined that the number of general officers from each state, being 13 states, were to be equal per total number of troops enlisted from the state they hailed from. In the case of Connecticut, Benedict Arnold, where Benedict Arnold came from, there were already two major generals. So, in other words, uh, the Congress felt that, okay, if we have two major generals from Connecticut, why do we need to expand it? In other words, why would we need to double it? In other words, if we give Connecticut and Massachusetts more major generals than the other um, 11 states, then, it, then the other states are going to feel as though the Continental Congress is um, playing favoritism. Now, yes, the Continental Congress wants this to be a war where all 13 states are united and yes they are aware that there are those that there are plenty of people in the country that are um, loyalists but at the same time if if certain things are not done to where to where the um, to to where the portioning is right then how do you have a unified front so these are um, matters that um, Congress must deal with to um, ward off any other um, further uh, conflicts. Both Benedict Arnold and um, George uh, Washington were very baffled by the new procedural setup, but Washington supported Arnold on the grounds of knowing there weren't any sufficient means to charge him of anything deemed improper or suspicious, given that uh, Colonel John Brown came up with a um, baker's dozen of accusations 
and reported those allegations to Horatio Gates, to me is just uh, beyond ridiculous. Was Benedict Arnold back home in New Haven, Connecticut during March 1777? He was, and late March of 1777, being around March 26th, was no ordinary day. A courier whom rode frantically to Arnold's home provided him with news that, um, that really shook Arnold at the core. The British had invaded Connecticut. It turns out that nearly 26 British ships were spotted off Norwalk, heading for Compo Beach, 25 miles south of New Haven, and with the intended target being a supply depot at Danbury. This uh, supply depot, folks, had minimal um, defensive uh, protection. So once Arnold learned of this, he joined uh, Generals David Worcester and, um, and, uh, and a general by the name of Silman, whom led a 600 uh, militiaman force. The depot, um, by the time they got near the depot, it was already up in flames, including many town homes. However, um, Arnold, Worcester, and Silman were not ready to throw in the towel, and I'm glad they didn't. They decided to split up the uh, 600 uh, militiaman force. The actions uh, met with mixed results. Uh, sadly uh, for General Worcester, he received a fatal wound and would die from his fatal wounds on May the 2nd. Arnold's men and uh, General Silman joined with Arnold, but their men devised um, a makeshift barrier that was comprised of wagons and uh, stone, uh, anything that would uh, help withstand um, a, a British um, charge or a British, um, what do you call it, a British... Um, yeah, basically like an advancement or anything such as uh, British uh, firing at the enemy to where if they knocked enough of Arnold's men down, it would lead to a uh, retreat that would have been, say, out of control. But it turns out that uh, Benedict Arnold's men withstood three enemy charges. Although it did not, say, result in a victory, Benedict Arnold, uh, because of his um, acts of... Um, because of his acts of bravery, his courage, his devotion to the cause for independence, he was given a promotion. He went from brigadier to major general. Well, is it fair to say that uh, he's now uh, back in the action? That is, he's back in the Continental Army? Back in into the thick of the noble cause for independence? Yes. Uh, what did uh, General uh, Washington ask of Major General Benedict Arnold um, to take on around um, May 8th of 1777? Washington asked Arnold to take control of a fort at Peekskill, and uh, Peekskill is located in, in the Hudson Highlands. This fort around uh, Peekskill was positioned high above the Hudson River, protecting the Hudson Highlands from British advancements north of New York City. The threat at Peekskill was credible, meaning that there was a serious potential that, um, that Peekskill could come under uh, enemy uh, invasion, 
given that two months earlier, in March, there had been, in fact, a British raid. Washington simply did not want another similar episode happening. You can't blame him. Sometimes you have to learn the hard way. Don't mean that to be ugly, but sometimes we have to learn from uh, mistakes that could have been avoided so that they don't happen again. In other words, you, how many times do you want to get burned on a stove? Had the had greater military threats behind um, America's cause for independence become more troublesome by the summer of 1777? Yes, a major British invasion from Canada commenced with intended target being Albany. The British were led by a general named John Burgoyne, and he will be mentioned uh, quite... Um, he'll be mentioned... Uh, frequently more as we uh, progress into other uh, podcast segments down the road. But June 26th of 1777, General Burgoyne's forces made it as far south as Crown Point. Patriot guards moved to Ticonderoga with the British not far behind them. However, a big mistake on uh, Patriot forces occurred July 6th of 1777, and it was right in the, um, it was uh, really in, uh, how do you say it? It was in the heart of darkness. Patriot Commander Arthur St. Clair and General Philip Schuyler, for whatever unknown reasons, abandoned or surrendered Fort Ticonderoga without a single shot being fired. Both men faced court-martial for abandoning the fort. July 10th, 1777, the British Army at the north end of Wood Creek began coordinating plans for moving forward along the Hudson River Valley, and to make things more unsettling, a second British Army went another route from Canada and began threatening central New York State's Mohawk Valley. And if any of you aren't familiar with New York State's Mohawk Valley, it's the regions surrounding the Mohawk River in between the Adirondack and Catskill, Mount Adirondack and Catskill Mountains. Uh, the Mohawk Valley, would we would think of, like, say, Syracuse. Uh, other cities we would think of are like Utica, Rome, uh, Schenectady. Uh, when I think of Utica and Rome and uh, Schenectady, I think of the, uh, what we would eventually know as the Erie Canal that um, that became the made the major uh, waterway uh, inland waterway route from the Atlantic Ocean up through the Hudson River all the way uh, to uh, the Great Lakes, not just uh, along Lakes Ontario and Erie, but all the way to Buffalo, and then connected with cities like Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago. Uh, we haven't gotten that far yet uh, into America's early history, but uh, when I think of uh, cities in the Mohawk or towns in the Mohawk Valley, it would be easy to think of uh, the towns like Utica and Rome and Schenectady that would eventually be home to uh, one of the one of the uh, most unique of engineering feats, being the Erie Canal. Benedict Arnold took uh, personal matters or rather I should say allegations against him before the Board of War, as well as trying to restore uh, senior seniority rank involving uh, the five officers with uh, junior ranks getting ahead of him. But Congress still did not restore his seniority. 
July 1777 saw Arnold write to Washington with intention of resigning his commission, but Washington intervened and sent Arnold to assist General Philip Schuyler with the Mohawk Valley Expedition. Well, what do you know? Just when it seems like Arnold wants to throw in the towel, and he may have his reasons, isn't it fair to say that there's always someone going above and beyond to perhaps stick their necks out for him? Yes. Is it fair to say that George Washington has perhaps stuck his neck out for Benedict Arnold more than once? Yes. Does Benedict Arnold know know of this? Yes, he does. Is it fair to say that Arnold has thanked Washington for um, allowing him to stay uh, within this greater noble cause? I would like to say yes, but at the same time, is it fair to say that Arnold, he is so obsessed with his honor and image that, that, that yet when being confronted with allegations, it's almost as if he could have a mental breakdown. It's, it's, how do I say it? It's one of those things that we just really don't know what to expect. Things are great for a period of time, and then all of a sudden allegations come up, and it's like, oh my gosh, Who's out to get me? Why are they out? Why are they doing this? But yet at the same time, Benedict Arnold is not perfect himself. He has uh, caused uh, some problems of his own, where especially with James Easton and uh, John Brown. So really, in a sense, it's a two-way street. Yes, two sides to the story, whether we like it or not sometimes. But no matter what Benedict Arnold tries to do in terms of escaping injustices or unnecessary grievances, the paper trail just doesn't seem to leave him. And it almost seems like it's a curse. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, episode, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn more about the um, Fort Stanwick's, or, well, Fort Stanwick's is located in the Mohawk Valley, Uh, So I may have given part of this away, but we will learn more about uh, Benedict Arnold's um, expedition to the Mohawk Valley and how um, Patriot forces under the command of General Philip Schuyler are able to thwart um, further British advancements into the Mohawk Valley and what that might entail um, come uh, time for um, what leads up to uh, Saratoga. Thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again, and I hope that all of you, no matter where you live in the world, have a great upcoming um, weekend, and for some of you, it might already be the weekend as I speak, but uh, nonetheless, take care for now, and wherever you all may live, stay safe.